Welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Oncology. In this podcast, an oncologist, urologist and nurse discuss adverse event identification and management with immunotherapies and targeted therapies for locally advanced or metastatic urothelial carcinoma. The discussion is guided by pre-canvassed questions provided by healthcare professionals. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from Estella's Inc. and CGen Inc. and is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. Hello, my name is Dr. Axel Merseburger and I'm a urologist at the University Hospital Schleswig-Holstein in Germany. It is my pleasure to welcome you to this discussion on adverse events and management in locally advanced metastatic urothelial carcinoma. I'm here with Dr. Andre Fay, a medical oncologist and professor of medicine at the PUCRS School of Medicine in Puerto Alegre, Brazil. And Mrs. Maria Lapuente, a lead oncology research nurse at St. Barth Hospital in London, UK. With our agenda, we start with identifying and managing the possible adverse events associated with starting with antibody drug conjugates, then leading to FGFR inhibitors and rounding up with immune checkpoint inhibitors in metastatic urothelial carcinoma. ESMO and NCCN recommendation for targeted agents in locally advanced and metastatic urothelial carcinoma are seen here. Several indications from first line to second and last line for antibody drug conjugates, FGFR inhibitors, PD-1 and PDL one inhibitors. Identifying and managing possible adverse events associated with antibody drug conjugates. So, Antibody co drug conjugates are described here, the mechanism of action of those ADCs. On the left side, infortumab vedotin, targeting nectin-4, leading to microtubal disruption, cell cycle arrest, and apoptosis. On the right side, sacituzumab govitaken, SG, targeting TROP2, leading to DNA damage and apoptosis on the intracellular level. EV adverse events are shown here. Those on the left side are the common adverse events like neutropenia, maculopapular rash, and fatigue. And on the right side, you see additional adverse events of special interest like skin reaction, ocular observations and adverse events and peripheral neuropathy. Also important to keep in mind the blood glucose with um, the fear of hypoglycemia. Looking at the SG adverse event profile, here the additional adverse events on the right side of special interest is diarrhea, and nausea and vomiting, more like classical chemotherapy and also hypersensitivity. On the left side, the more common adverse events like neutropenia, leukopenia, anemia and 
um, febrile neutropenia. So let's have a look at uh, the ADCs and what uh, aspects are important in daily clinical life and uh, for our patients. And uh, let me start uh, with uh, you, Dr. Fay. In your clinical practice, and I know you have had a lot of experience in, with ADCs, what are the key AEs to be aware with antibody drug conjugates in patients with advanced or metastatic urotelial carcinoma? Thank you, Axel. It's a pleasure to be discussing this with uh, all you. Uh, and it's important to recognize that this is a new, a new class of agents and with a completely different toxicity profile with other agents that we have been using to treat urothelial carcinoma. So we, we, sh we, we should expect here a, a different pattern of adverse events. So we are seeing here hyperglycemia, we need to be aware about the skin reactions and the severity of these skin reactions, uh, for example, and the other adverse events are important because it will define the way that we are gonna manage it. I think we are gonna face ocular alterations that are rare, but could impact uh, uh, in, a, in a very important way, the quality of life of patients, uh, as well as um, peripheral neuropathy that, are, that, that it's a, an adverse event that could be important with the use of, of these medications. So those are uh, different uh, uh, adverse events, and we could be aware that patients that are more uh, at risk to develop these kind of, of adverse events, for example, patients with a previous diabetes are more at risk to develop hyperglycemia. Uh, and so we need to be aware and work uh, with uh, clinicians to uh, follow those patients in the right way. Uh, and it's important to recognize that uh, um, uh, the new studies and probably the new treatment uh, uh, changes that, that we'll have will uh, involve uh, combination therapy. So we have many studies, combination ADCs with, for example, immunotherapy of, or other targets. Uh, and these combinations could add different um, adverse events or make the adverse events more intense or more severe. Uh, and this could be an important thing uh, to be aware when we are treating patients with this kind uh, of agents. Well, Andrew, thanks, thanks a lot. And um, Maria, knowing that your center was one of the first using ADCs here in Europe, um, so you have a lot of experience with the patient treated with ADCs, what monitoring strategies may be implemented in clinical practice or are there tests or parameters also from your, your view that can be used to identify patients who are at risk of developing adverse events? It's no magic book. Nothing is black and white uh, with uh, cancer patients. I think it's all into a gray area. But yes, we were one of the first centers uh, treating patients with ADCs. Uh, one of the main side effects that we identified was peripheral neuropathy. We were following the patients on a weekly basis. They were coming for the treatment. We were doing blood tests. And unfortunately, not all the patients were reporting side effects in a timely manner. 
we found out that a couple of patients were under-reporting side effects. It's very important that we set uh, the expectations with the patients, that we explain to them that having a dose reduction on or having a delay on the treatment doesn't mean that we're not treating their cancer. We don't have a specific parameter here. I think it's more uh, defined as per the patient. We need to involve the patient, and we need to also see how they feel receiving the treatment. Well, well thanks a lot. Very important points, and um, that's... Have a look to, to the practice in Brazil. Uh, Andre, uh, how do you approach the management of possible adverse events in your clinical practice? So this is a very important, important point to me because I believe that we all are still in a learning curve um, in terms of how to manage uh, the adverse events of this new class of drugs because uh, the, the, the majority of the experience come from the clinical trials. Uh, for example, we have um, uh, the ADCs, the Infortumab Bedotin recently approved in Brazil. So we are having you know, the, the, uh, a small number of patients being treated in the real world uh, with these medications and the, the experience come from the clinical research. And when we look uh, to uh, the clinical uh, trials, there was no specific management guideline for these adverse events. Of course, there are some guidance in terms of what are the adverse events and what, what are the adverse events that we should be aware, but there was no specifically recommendations uh, for the adverse events. For example, there are uh, recommendations, for example, okay, if we have a hyperglycemia, more than 250, we need to discontinue the medication. And so this is something that we need to interrupt treatment. Uh, there are some recommendations uh, for uh, using topical steroids for skin reactions that are not severe. There are grade one, for example, or the, uh, the utilization of antihistaminic medications to treat this kind of uh, skin reactions. But uh, uh, honestly, uh, we need to, to educate not only patients, but the um, uh, the physicians that will be handling uh, in, in taking care of those patients, for example, the dermatology team also need to be aware of this type of adverse events to help us on managing these um, um, uh, adverse events that could come up uh, with these medications. And so uh, at the end, the, the way that we are going to manage Manage. There is no a standard or a guideline, a specific guideline that will follow. So we need to uh, to work uh, in a multidisciplinary way, and we are going to take in consideration the severity uh, of the adverse event to define if we are going to reduce those uh, or if we are going to interrupt treatment. Uh, usually, patients need a, a kind of a temporary interruption to recover for an adverse events, and, and considering the way that the patient will recover, we are going to define if we are going to restart in the same dose, or if we're going to reduce those, or if, for example, we need to interrupt treatment uh, definitively. So we have uh, discussed a lot on EV, and we have another ADT, Satituzumab Guvitekan, let's call it SG, easier pronounced for me as German. So Maria, I know you have had patients treated and have patients treated with SG, and um, as we know, um, the additional adverse events of special interest is diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, or hypersensitivity. Uh, what is your approach and how do you uh, treat or deal with the adverse events or special programs for the patients on SG? 
Yes, so patients receiving SG, as you mentioned, they do suffer uh, from certain side effects, especially uh, gastrointestinal side effects. What we tend to do on our approach uh, here in London is to, to send them home with medication that helps them preventing those side effects or minimizing the side effects, uh, such as anti-diarrhea medication, uh, medication from the nausea, etc. Yes, um, thank you. And I think it's important what you pointed out that uh, not the ADCs differ and also the side effects uh, um, can differ. And that's important. And thanks for pointing that out. Finally, one um, last important question I would have for you too is um, what is important for, of patient education? Maybe this goes to Maria. And also, um, how should we educate our colleagues, which, for example, dermatologists or endocrinologists also need to learn about uh, these new adverse events with those new ADCs? So, Maria, please start with the importance of patient education and then a final comment from uh, Dr. Fai on the multidisciplinary team working. Yeah, definitely. So, patient education is key with this type of treatment. Uh, there are multiple side effects uh, that can happen during during the treatment, and it is quite important that our patient report to us on a timely manner. As Dr. Fay mentioned, uh, we we started these treatments during clinical trials, and we do use very often patients reported outcomes where the patients uh, tell us how how they feel without having a conversation with us, they pretty much complete a questionnaire. And we did identify so many patients that were actually not feeling great receiving Enfortumab, and we had to dose reduce or give them a break thanks to it. Patients, they need to be fully aware that side effects are expected and that we're gonna be there to support them. There are medications that can help them, medications that can, can actually mitigate those type of side effects. And as a team, all together with dermatologists and other clinicians, we need to work uh, closely to, to improve the side effects from our patients and their management on their toxicities. Thank you. Andre, a comment from your side on this topic? I completely agree. Uh, I completely agree. And I think that uh, this is uh, an intimate need and maybe in the future that we should develop a, a kind of guideline on how to handle the specific toxicities. And, and I think the education, not only of the patient and in our colleagues in a kind of a multidisciplinary way, is very, very important uh, to be able to early recognize and early get the input of our colleagues and specialists to, to be more uh, proactive in terms of treating uh, this new class of adverse events, uh, being more successful in keeping patients on treatment and avoiding a treatment interruptions. Uh, that at the end, we want to keep patients on drugs, right? To, to get the, the clinical benefit. But uh, if we are able to understand what are the adverse events and we are able to treat uh, in an early way, I think we will be more successful. Perfect summary. Thank you both. And we will move on. So now we come to identifying and managing possible adverse events associated with FGFR inhibitors. And uh, it's also a pretty new drug in geo-oncology. Um, let's look at erdafitinib here. You see the FGFR receptor and um, the erdafitinib really blocks the protein in the nucleus and causes an inhibition of tumor growth um, invasion and stops metastasis and prolongs survival 
that's the mode of action of erdafitinib. So what's the price with regards to adverse events in this profile? Common adverse events, um, three and up, uh, is common. We have hyponitremia, we have stomatitis, we have asthenia, and those um, additional adverse events of special interest, we want to focus on the nail and skin reactions, the hypophosphatemia, and also the ocular issues that might occur with FGFR inhibitor treatment. So um, having the experts here and knowing that you, Dr. Fai, have had several patients treated with FGFR inhibitors in metastatic urotelial carcinoma, could you tell your practical approach on how you deal with possible ocular disorders or hyperphosphatemia and possible drug-drug interactions? What's your clinical approach on monitoring those patients? So uh, this, is, this is a very important discussion because this is not an easy drug in my perspective. Uh, those patients, and, and I think this is a, a characteristics of patients with urothelial carcinoma that were previously treated, uh, and we are at least at, uh, here in Brazil, we have access to this medication in further lines, second lines, or uh, patients that received other treatments before. Uh, and sometimes those patients are very sick. Those patients are, are fra fragile. And, and these and could make things more difficult to handle in terms of uh, toxicity. So I believe that uh, it's important here, and this is a, a, an important thing for uh, FGR uh, inhibitors, that is the hyperphosphatemia, the hyponatremia, so laboratory tests that should be monitored during treatment. So I usually see those patients weekly uh, in the beginning of treatment, and I repeat uh, blood tests weekly until uh, we define the correct dose for those patients and based on hyperphosphatemia, we could increase the dose or, or keep the dose in the lower levels. So this is important. And usually the, the, the diverse events will occur in the beginning of the treatment, uh, in the first weeks of treatment. So I believe that this is the moment that we should be very close uh, to our patients, monitor hyperphosphatemia, Sometimes we need uh, to, uh, depending on uh, phosphate levels, we need to interrupt for one week, repeat the blood test, and then define if we are going to reduce dose or keep the same dose again. Uh, so it, it's a bit tricky to handle with um, uh, these changes in, in phosphate. And this is, for me, something that, again, it's new, it's different. Uh, other drugs are usually not related with hyperphosphatemia. So uh, this is something that I think Maria pointed out very well in our previous discussion that uh, we need to educate uh, patients and also physicians uh, to be aware of these different profile of, uh, of toxicities and how to manage this. So I, I think that the, the laboratory alterations related with FGR, FGR, FGFR inhibitors are very important. And now, so again, here we have the ocular toxicities. So uh, um, uh, although in these uh, rare situations, uh, this is something that could be very uh, important in terms of the consequences that these uh, re retinal uh, alterations could um, uh, 
bring to patients. So I think that these patients uh, should be evaluated before start uh, FGFR inhibitors uh, by the ophthalmology team uh, to avoid any uh, severe complications, visual complications uh, for uh, those patients. So Andre, um, are there any specific strategies in your clinic, such as uh, dietary phosphate restriction or dry eye for prophylaxis that you recommend your patients? So that's a, that's a very good point. So, uh, and we should um, uh, educate patients uh, that will present with uh, alterations in the phosphate that diet, dietary restrictions uh, are important to keep the levels on the right uh, range. So we usually uh, recommend patients to avoid milk and, 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 and other milk-related uh, food uh, and also soda uh, and, and things that could increase uh, phosphate levels that could be avoided during treatment. So the dietary uh, orientation are very important. And to keep on our team uh, the uh, people that will work with the nutritional aspects uh, during treatment are also important when, when we are uh, building our multidisciplinary team. Well, thanks a lot. Maria, any comments on that? Yes, I just want to add, uh, here in London, we, we do refer our patients receiving new treatments uh, after they complete cycle one day one. Uh, we work very closely with the dietitians. Uh, I think they're a group that are emerging and they're working with uh, oncologists uh, more frequently now than before. And these patients receiving FGFR targeted therapies, they do get a leaflet that explains a little bit more into details what kind of food they should be eating just to give, uh, to give them an idea. Thank you, thank you. And um, I think it's very important that we have uh, Maria Lapuente with us because um, Honestly, I mean, we, we as doctors are sometimes on a rush. And I think most of the time, uh, the, the dedicated nurses uh, see the patient uh, in, for the longest time. So, Maria, could you um, tell us how do you interact with the patient? Because they tend to forget also a lot after we have spoken to them. And then it's the cancer situation and the imaging that has been discussed. So do you give them some handouts? What do we aware of? Or do they have numbers they can call. What's your practical approach? Yes, so patients receiving FGFR targeted therapies, as Dr. Faye mentioned, they do struggle a lot at the very beginning. I think uh, it's quite important for them to, to know who to contact when they're not feeling well, know where to go if they're not feeling well. We do see them very often at the very beginning. I think it's quite key to know what the dose that they should receive. It probably takes a couple of cycles for clinicians to understand what is the right dose for the for the patient. And it might vary. It's very, it's very important to do blood tests quite often. These patients have quite a few abnormalities on the blood test, and they might not always experience themselves feeling unwell. They might feel absolutely fine. And then when you repeat the blood test, you see actually that there are certain abnormalities. I think it's quite key for us nurses, as you mentioned, Axel, we do see them very often. 
they go to the consultations with the doctors and they say, I'm fine, I'm feeling okay, I'm going to be fine. And then they actually come out of the room and they, they meet with us and they say, you know what, I had a terrible week. So I think patients sometimes they open a bit more with nurses and, and that's why I'm taking advantage sometimes during my clinics when they see the doctor and then they come to see me and they I say, you know what, you're not looking good. They, they feel probably... Uh, more open with with us nurses uh, than maybe with doctors because at the end of the day you have the power to change start start or stop the treatment so it's very important for them to feel supported if you allow me just to, to point out something uh, again here uh, so some dermatologic things uh, are important to mention here uh, i have seen some patients with ongeal alterations uh, that are, are very important in terms of uh, limiting quality of life. So this is also important and I think uh, work together with dermatologists and sometimes uh, patients need uh, those interruptions uh, to, to, you know, some ungual detachments or, or, or a lot of pain related with this, limiting quality of life. So uh, treatment interruptions are, uh, are, are more frequent that we could uh, expect uh, to keep patient on treatment and, 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 and maintaining quality of life during uh, during treatment. And again, multidisciplinarity here are some are something that we need to encourage uh, that, that should be developed uh, in uh, in teams that are treating uh, those patients with these new uh, treatments now available. Andre, thank you, thank you for stepping in there, and I think. Very important points here raised by the colleagues and also thank you, Maria, on pointing out this uh, multidisciplinary or also, also interdisciplinary discussion among nurses and doctors. And I think this is very important and we do this every week that we discuss the patients and uh, have the real world experience from your work and also from the medical side. And as said, it's a balance of tumor therapy and on the other hand, um, side effect handling. So um, one last question on this part to, to Dr. Fai. When do you stop treatment? Is it more like the clinical adverse events or the lab values or what made you stop? And when do you start or restart again? So uh, depending on uh, the adverse event and the grade, the severity of the adverse event, we usually, I usually tend to use uh, the CDC uh, and the same graduation and, and, and classifications that the clinical trials have used uh, to define the severity of the adverse events. So we try to follow, uh, but I believe that as Maria pointed out, sometimes we need to fill the patient and individualize the decisions considering how the patient is feeling, how important is the adverse event for that specific patient. I believe that one thing that is important here is to recognize as soon as we can uh, the, the adverse event. So the early recognition uh, of an adverse event will allow us to manage these um, in an easier way and avoid treatment interruption. So if we get a patient, for example, with a dermatologic alteration that we could recognize in an, in an early point of, of the treatment, we could discuss with the dermatology uh, dermatologist and, and try to uh, implement a specific treatment, avoiding treatment interruption. So I think that in terms of um, 
treatment interruptions depends on uh, the patient clinical condition and how it's impacting his quality of life and the type of adverse event. For example, if we have a patient with, with hyperphosphatemia, the treatment interruptions will depend on the level of the phosphate. Uh, if the phosphate is, for example, higher than nine, we should interrupt treatment and we probably will define uh, a dose modification for this specific uh, adverse event. So, so this is, uh, is something that will vary according to the adverse event and the, and the severity of um, uh, the graduation of this adverse event. For example, if we have a phosphate uh, in this same example at seven, we could interrupt for one week and, and check the, the, the blood test again. And if the level is lower or inside uh, or, or came back to the normality range, we could start with the same dose, for example. So, so treatment interruptions uh, and how we are going to manage dose reductions will depend on how it's impacting patient and disparity of the adverse event. Thank you. Thank you both for those great comments. And I learned a lot. Early identification of adverse events, very, very important. Secondly, teamwork that we work together and include the patient in this information. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So now moving into identifying and managing those possible adverse events associated with immune checkpoint inhibitors, where we have long year experience in advanced bladder cancer already. So the mechanism of action in PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors is quite clear. You have the tumor cell and you have the T cell and the antibody and then the anti-PD-L1 or anti-PD-1 uh, so to restore the anti-tumor T cell response and then possibly hopefully cure the tumor. Looking at atezolizumab and pembrolizumab adverse events profiles, um, Atezo on the top and Pembro on the, on the low line here. And the, the ones that are of special interest is surely colitis, hepatitis, nephritis, pneumonitis, and um, hypothyroidism. So some, usually it's very mild and uh, the adverse events can be handled pretty good. But there are some uh, percentage, as you see here, where you have more than grade three adverse events or grade three adverse events where it really bothers or even harms the patient. The same accounts for avilumab and nivolumab. You see the common uh, adverse events, grade three and four here, which is also pneumonitis, colitis, hepatic complications and hypothyroidism. So something we need to take care of, especially when we have patients with uh, um, a different a changing condition when on this tumor therapy. Again, and finally, um, we will discuss now the um, PDL1 inhibitors and PD1 inhibitors. Thanks for being here with me, Maria and Andre. Um, in your clinical practice, um, what are your key adverse events with immune checkpoint inhibitors in patients with advanced metastatic urothelial carcinoma? Is it fatigue? Is it more rash? Is it gastrointestinal or more dermatological effects? And let's start, ladies first. Maria, would you like to comment? Yeah, I think what is very impressive uh, and, and, and important at the same time about immunotherapy is we, we see patients receiving immunotherapy and we've seen them for a long time. And, and, and let's say most of them are fine 
But like you mentioned before, we do have some side effects that are very unpredictable. These patients might have had treatment for 10 cycles, 15 cycles, and all of a the sudden they're developing pneumonitis, they're developing abnormalities on the liver function. It, it is very important, again, to, to, to emphasize to the patients that, yes, you had a 10 rounds of cycles with really good you know, uh, side effects. Uh, you probably had fatigue and a couple of other issues, but that doesn't mean that you, know, you, you might not end up having another side effect. It's quite important on, on our end to, to make sure they do understand that they still need to report side effects to us, even though they had a few cycles with a really good uh, outcome from them in terms of side effects. So I think just to, to, to summarize, I think that the immunotherapies are generally very well tolerated and, and we see that on our daily practice, but we should remember and emphasize this to the patients that the side effects are very unpredictable and they should still report to us in a timely manner. The sooner we know about immunotherapy side effects, the, 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 the sooner we can act on them and probably reverse the symptoms. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. And also very important to point out the possible delay of side effects after several cycles of uh, check or immune checkpoint inhibitor treatment. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Now, a pretty difficult question because I'm happy to hear or interested to hear your opinion, Andre, on are there any tests or parameters or protocols that can be used to identify the patients that are at risk of developing adverse events? Do we know this beforehand? Which are the ones that are, that are of risk? Any answer to that? So, Axel, this is a, this is a great question. Uh, I think we have learned a lot about the immunotherapy, not only uh, from GU tumors and urothelial carcinoma, but we are we have now an experience with uh, melanoma, lung cancer, uh, kidney cancer, and other diseases that uh, uh, the use of immunotherapy uh, uh, taught us a lot of a lot of information. So uh, again, I completely agree with Maria that the majority of patients will tolerate very well immunotherapy and will not feel anything, and the patients will come okay. I, I don't have any adverse events. However, there is still uh, around 20% of patients that will have uh, some uh, adverse event, uh, and again, the definition of the, the, the severity. The intensity of the adverse event is very important. We know that we are talking here about immune-related adverse events. So this is a kind of, uh, uh, we need to understand that when we are talking about immunotherapy here, we are uh, activating the T-cell response or reactivating the T-cell response. So we are going to be facing um, uh, immune-related adverse events, and we could get inflammation in every place in our system of our body. So those patients uh, who have previously some autoimmune disease are probably, Axel, the patients that we need to be more careful uh, to treat, because those patients, it's not a, a contraindication uh, for treating those patients, but uh, those patients are at risk or, or have a higher risk for developing an immune-related adverse event. So we need to be careful on those patients with an autoimmune disease. And we are seeing a different kind of uh, autoimmune disease here. But for example, patients that have a rheumatologic diseases, we should be careful here uh, when using uh, or when we are 
we are going to recommend an immunotherapy uh, to treat those patients because we could um, make the, 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 this autoimmune disease uh, worse or, or we could deteriorate the, the previous symptoms. So there is no specific protocol to follow. There's no specific exams that, that we usually order for those, those patients, but the clinical identification is very important because uh, we have also good treatments uh, to implement on those patients to develop an adverse, an immune-related adverse events, and, and we could control uh, the adverse event um, uh, uh, kind of easily in the majority uh, of, uh, of types. So, so it's important here that clinically we are aware of the type of adverse events that we are going to face with these treatments, and, and I think this is important because we are discussing here uh, different mechanism of actions and different drugs that are uh, uh, generating completely different profile of adverse events. And so we need to understand what kind of adverse events that we are going to have with those drugs, uh, because it will help us in the clinic uh, to uh, early identification of adverse events. So uh, uh, also it's important to understand that we have a kind of a timeline for the adverse events. There are some uh, uh, immune-related adverse events that occur earlier during the process, other that will be later, uh, and this is important to, to recognize. But the early identification and the clinical evaluation of patient, to me, is the most important thing, uh, and probably the patients with a previous autoimmune disease are those patients that we could be very careful to recommend this kind of treatment, and if, and if we decided to use, uh, we need to monitor closely because they are at, at risk of have some complication um, regarding the previous disease. Okay, okay, Th thanks. Some um, very important aspects here. Um, coming back to how you monitor, Maria, um, do you have specific forms or how do you document the adverse events and do you discuss it right away with the physician, with the oncologist, or is it something where you meet frequently or depending on what the patient reports? Would, would like to hear your, your, your uh, clinical practice on that. So when a patient starts uh, immunotherapy for the first time, and I would say during the first three, four cycles, we obviously keep an extra eye on the patients. You tend to contact them more often by phone calls or maybe when they come into clinic. Like Dr. Fay mentioned, there are certain side effects that do happen during the first cycles. And unfortunately, most of them are side effects that might lead to the discontinuation of the treatment. So it's quite important from the patients for the patients to, to, to inform the team as soon as possible. I think when they reach to a point uh, that they've been coming in for treatment for a long time, I'm, I'm not sure in your countries, but uh, here in the UK, we're moving into teleconsultations very, uh, with most of the clinicians are looking into that. And I think it's great, uh, but on the other hand, we need to, to make sure that we don't lose any patient having side effects that we are not identified by, by a face-to-face -face consultation. So I think teleconsultations are great, but we might need to select the patients that meet that criteria to move into telephone consultations. So just to, to, to summarize, I think the very first cycles are quite important. The patients need to be monitored uh, very closely. When they reach certain cycles, there's more leeway but we still need to remember that side effects can happen at any point during their treatment. 
Well, thank you. Thank you both. And I think I learned a lot. And even though the adverse events with the immune checkpoint inhibitors are relatively um, rare, uh, they can happen. And then it's very good to that you have educated patients, informed patients, and also aware of them yourself. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So thank you. Thank you very much for watching this discussion on adverse events identifying and management in locally advanced metastatic urothelial carcinoma. We hope it was it has been useful for you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access more content on this and related topics on Touch Oncology at www.touchoncology.com.